Well, thanks for inviting me here. Um, I'm trying not to be terribly intimidated by this room, um, but very grateful to get to meet some of you face-to-face -face that I've only um, seen names of or, or read in print. Um, and I'm a historian, as Jeff mentioned, and so I have to start with a reflection on uh, the past um, and remembering that a little bit. So 500 years ago this year, everybody knows, right? Yeah, the Martin Luther strode across, maybe, maybe not. Um, Wittenberg, maybe, maybe not, nailed 95 theses on a door. But we do mark this as the beginning of the Reformation. And I'm an early modern historian. I study from the 1400s to the 1700s. So for us, it is all Reformation all the time, has been for several years. And we are thinking a little bit about that um, even on our campus, I get to teach on the Reformation this semester. And as we celebrate that, we think about what we've gained. We're celebrating what we have gained with the Reformation. And um, historians like to remember a little bit about what we've lost with the Reformation. Because as much as we enjoy uh, what the Reformation gave us, um, maybe we think about uh, freedom from authority, maybe we think about sola scriptura, uh, we also know that we are uh, disadvantaged by the fact that there was a big split in the church and that the whole church didn't um, accept the message of sola fide, um, sola Christa. Um, there are some who view the Reformation as the beginning of all the problems with authority, uh, with modern pluralism. That's the Reformation's fault. Uh, by the way, I think both proponents of this idea, both people who are pro-Reformation and people who are against Reformation, forget that only about a third of Christians were in the Latin Roman church at the time of the Reformation. And so sometimes those of us who think, you know, the Pope was in charge of all Christians and oppressing um, and that church schism started with there had been lots of people um, for thousand plus years that didn't adhere to papal authority. Uh, this is a Western European story, but it's our story, and it's worth remembering. But Brad Gregory, who's a historian at Notre Dame, has written a book called The Unintended Reformation, which some of you may be familiar with, in which he argues that he starts out assuming that the world that we live in is uh, plagued by postmodern relativism and pluralism and that there's no good authority anymore and um, nobody knows what truth is anymore. And that's all a result, as he would say, unintended of the Reformation because the reformers made anyone who wanted to be an interpreter of scripture and therefore undermined all coherent attempts at some sort of universal truth somebody who was an arbiter of all of that. And we could criticize Professor Gregory on multiple levels, could do that in another time and place, but there is a certain logic to the way the modern world has developed that support his concern with the Reformation. Modern ways of knowing have accompanied modern anthropology and modern politics, privileging the individual and our ability to choose the assumption that we are all free agents who can choose whatever we want, privileging individual rights. And we've benefited from that tremendously. But also, something has been lost as the logic of modernity has played out. We are isolated. We lack rootedness. 
And sometimes we lack the language to confess and forgive and submit to each other with this logic of modernity. As I study the 17th century, in England specifically, it's 150 years on from the Reformation um, in the English-speaking world, I see much less emphasis on the sin of schism. That's a, langu- that's a word that's used a lot um, in the early modern world, the sin of schism. And we don't use that very much anymore. Uh, that word in general, Um, but it used to be something Christians thought about a great deal because the thing that Jesus said identified us as his disciples was the love and the unity that we would have for each other. And so to breach that unity was to break the fundamental number one command that God gave us, which is to be one and to love each other. So this was a major sin, the sin of schism. Um, It's part and parcel of why excommunication worked as part of church discipline. Because if you want to achieve peace and unity, you need to be in communion with each other, people said. That's part of how we are Christ's disciples. And so uh, Christians understood Jesus' mandate to love each other, to be played out in communion, that we come together and we have communion and worship together. And to separate from the church, to start another church, to exclude someone from that communion was to commit a big sin. And it meant a lot to not be in communion with people. So those of us who study the origins of the modern world and the development of political liberalism, which is something that I do um, in addition to studying things like religious toleration, and the development of political liberal political institutions... We notice that these liberal political institutions, the ones you and I benefit from in our countries, representative government, um, equality before the law, um, basically rights-based government, those we often trace as being based on the development of something we call civil society, and that is formed largely through voluntary organizations. Voluntary organizations. Um, So the need for the human need that we have for community is changed in the modern world in the new ways we organize ourselves now. So we think of ourselves as being able to choose communities like clubs, um, like organizations, institutions, even marriage partners, um, political parties. We can choose those if we want to. And that was a new thing in most of human history. People didn't have the choice to join up with some sort of organization. And civil society in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries was full of these voluntary organizations. And churches became just one other voluntary organization that you were part of, that you had the ability to choose. It's like a club. You could choose to be part of it and be a member or not be part of it. Radical liberals and other moderns, I think, ignore the way that our most important ways of belonging for you and I aren't ones that we choose. Family, for instance. Ethnicity. Born, if you're born into a faith tradition. Those are some of our most important ways of belonging. And our liberal, modern liberal political ideologies don't actually allow for those kinds of groups or organizations to have any sort of rights. Just the individual has rights, not these different ways of belonging. 
Religious groups got included in this, especially after the Great Awakening in the early 18th century, because the idea of conversion and joining a church after you have your own personal experience made church much more like any other club. And so that became sort of normal for the people we call evangelical Christians, which you and I, for better or for worse, fall into that category. If you can choose your community, then you don't have a right to belong to it. There are no rights for this sort of communal belonging. If you don't fit into one club, choose another. And that became the standard for church belonging along with these other forms that we call civil society. And again, huge benefits to that for all of us, right? Not necessarily here to critique liberalism right now. So where does that leave, though, the idea of the organic body of Christ, that holdover from a day when metaphors like that worked? Is such a thing possible in a pluralist society where a local church is just one kind of group or club that one can belong to? Do we have a right to belong to it and to be included? Can we make demands of each other in a community like that? How much of our individual selves and ideals can or should we sacrifice for that unity, that meeting together for communion and worship? And some of us here, I've already had several conversations this afternoon, are following very important discussions about unity within our larger church structure. Much wiser, more philosophically and theologically rooted people than I are writing about this and discussing it and and really wrestling with these ideas. And many of us may be saddened and possibly even bemused by the parallels these conversations have with the larger Reformation concerns about splitting the church or what it takes to be unified or when you cross a line where now you're in a different kind of church. Sort of odd to look at some of those parallel conversations. Um, These aren't new concerns. How much diversity can we handle in our unity, and who gets to arbitrate that? These are questions we've been asking for 500 years and even before. Maybe some of us in this room hold views that make us feel we're the ones who are being pushed out or feeling left out. And we like the Reformation analogy, right? Because we get to pick, we get to identify in that story with heroes like Anne Hutchinson or Luther, Martin Luther, the ones who kind of spoke for truth and strength and then got, got pushed out. But I'd like, if we can imagine it for just a second here, for us to step away from that larger discussion about, in, in the denomination um, about unity and think about the local church. That's what I want to talk about for the rest of my time here. Um, because I think it's possible that some of us here in this room, maybe even the majority of us, have some influence and are active in local churches. So we can't pretend we are constantly the marginalized in this room. All right? That might be a a fun game to get to play sometimes, but let's be honest. Um, And it's too easy to see ourselves as the victims at attempts for purity and unity and authority and not take seriously the ways in which we push people to the margins or create things like multiple tiers and levels of membership 
Because when we choose an identity, when we try to form a community that is real and comprehensible, we do articulate something of who we are and who we are not. This is where the club analogy comes. This is what we are gather here for. This is our mission. This is what we're about. And for those of us who are perhaps sometimes in positions where we get to form that mission statement, who function as leaders of discussions, influencers of ideas, enactors of programs, writers of mission statements, we know that there are sometimes strong ideas about what a local church should be and do and practice. And we want to have unique and positive practices, and we may even want to keep the standards of practice high. So we have people who aren't fully centered, who aren't totally on board with what we're doing, and they're fine, but they're kind of on the margins there of what we're doing, because this is the core group of, of kind of who we are. But what if they don't want to be moved from the margins to the center, because sometimes that's what we want to do. We want to take people with, like, this is who we stand for, and we want to get people more involved and get them to kind of join in more with the core of who we think we are. But what, what if they don't want to be? What if they're happy being on the edges? Are we okay with that? And what if they want to be more involved, sometimes more upsettingly, they want to be more involved in leadership or in shaping the church, but their ideas or practices seems to clash with the dominant culture and vision for our local congregation. And in a world where modern rights and privileges allow for people to have choice, our splits from the local church, migrations to more comfortable places, just part of how things have to be. So when my husband and I and a few others decided to plant a church, we spent nine months meeting each week and hammering out what we thought our mission should be, our practices, our priorities, um, what, what our, our culture would be, trying to get on the same page with each other. And the most painful part was when we spent some time thinking about, okay, what does membership look like? What would it be for, what would it mean for someone to be a full member of the well? That was the name of our church. It just, what would that look like? And there were a couple of people in our small group of eight who were part of the church planting team who did not feel comfortable at all with that conversation. And it was an awkward conversation. Um, so we said things like, if someone's, you know, a fully engaged member, they'll be, um, you know, participating in small groups and being part of some community service. And they'll be coming alongside other people and making disciples and, you know, kind of coming alongside and loving people into the kingdom. Like, that's what that will look like, you know. For their fully and and at least one um, woman said, "I just what if people just want to come and be there on Saturday morning and like don't want to do all of that? You know, you're saying they're not really full members." And and we kept saying, "No, well, we're not saying that, but we we'd like for them. You know, this is what we we kind of want to move people towards, and this is what we want to hold up." And um, she eventually left the team and horrifyingly, I don't think she's actually even ever been back to church since. Like that level of conversation about what discipleship might look like for us was too upsetting for her because it made it seem like there were going to be some people who weren't fully members and some people who were, and that we were privileging some of those people more than others. We had to think about would membership, um, what would membership or what would being a fully fledged member of the well look like if somebody was a baptized Baptist married to an Adventist and coming and making their home with us, would we consider them to be fully on board if they were engaging in all these activities or not? Or what if they never wanted to be baptized? Would, would we be happy with that? Um, would we just be happy with people just transferring their membership there and not, not being involved at all? Um, these are things that, are all, that we talk about when we think about um, discipleship 
Um, but they're also what we just wanted our particular congregation, what norms we wanted to have in our particular conversation. Um, so what were we doing something that's sort of inappropriate or that was engaging in judgment of how good a Christian someone was? Next week, a week from today at Avondale, we're having um, a one-day event, the One Project, and we're focusing on discipleship. And if any of you are around for that, that's going to be a great set of conversations about this very difficult and ubiquitous term, discipleship. But we planted a church because we wanted to promote a certain kind of incarnational life together, a certain way of being the body of Christ together, and in a particular community. And we had mission and goals. And as the years we went on, we found that the more we talked about this and tried to hold it up as a standard, the more hurtful it was to people who didn't feel like they lived up to it. So for instance, we were rooted in the downtown community, and we consistently talked about how we wanted to be a church for people who lived and worked in the city of Chattanooga even though there were plenty of fantastic churches out in the suburbs and around the main university. Um, we, we were happy with those. We'd been, the university church had been the one that sponsored us to plant this church, so we were in good relationship with them. But we wanted to be very local. And so we highlighted stories of people who lived downtown and how they were doing that and how they were living their Christian life there. We highlighted stories of people who'd chosen to move downtown to be part of it. And those who were commuting 45 minutes each way and who wanted this to be their church and who loved it felt like we were saying maybe they weren't quite fully the kind of members we're really looking for. You know, and actually for several years, we kept leadership to people who lived downtown because we were trying to at least continue a certain culture. It's still, our church still is only about 20% people who live in the city. And that's not at all what we thought was going to happen when we planted the church. We've had to adapt to new realities. We didn't want to be a communer church. We wanted to be the body of Christ in a specific place. We thought it was a strong vision of who we were and that there were plenty of fantastic churches out there in the suburbs for people that who, who lived out there. But what it ended up looking like was us excluding certain people. And there's many other examples that we could have of this. Um, my own parents, who 40 years ago planted a church in the Appalachian Mountains in West Virginia, um, in poverty-stricken area, uh, with doctors and nurses, and my dad has a master's in public health, as well as being a minister and a school teacher, started a church and school and clinics, really wanted to help West Virginians with their health care, and did a whole lot for West Virginian primary care. But no local West Virginian wanted to join that group of highly educated, health-mad people. And when they did, they would come for a little, but never felt, always felt like, you know, we were happy to have them, we'd give them a hand, help them out, but they were never going to be quite on the same par with everybody else. And maybe people would be looking askance at them if they didn't look as fit as they should be or if they were still engaged in eating a lot of sugar and things like that. And so consequently, 40 years later, that church has that same group of people still there and are still there in their 70s and vibrant and active, but not any local West Virginians. Super, super hard to feel like they were on the same level because a strong culture, strong mission that excluded a whole lot of people. So what happens when it feels like there are multiple tiers to membership, to being the body? Is this biblical? And I want to say no, 
But I also recognize that there's some realities of human organization. Even a local church, and maybe especially a local church, needs a sense of why it exists and what its priorities are. And there's such a thing as actual shared culture, activities and practices that are sustained and cultivated, and it's genuinely impossible to be all things to all people at the same time. Isn't it true that there needs to be some kind of core and that there are people who embody it and represent it and articulate that for everyone? And does it help or make sense to think of it as a circle where those tending the core values of the community and others on the edge and somewhere in between, and there's leaders that are willing to put the time and effort in to crafting a vision and recruiting people to it, and that not everyone is fitted for that. So some might want to lead or take the church in a direction others aren't interested, and then they feel hurt that they weren't included. And others want to come and don't want to be super involved and want to remain on the fringes and don't want people kicking them out because they're not migrating to the core. They want to be legitimate where they are. And isn't that just natural? And should we care that there might be multiple levels of involvement? Is that really kind of unity? But we all recognize the hurt and misunderstandings that often happen as a result of this. Especially now, if you're in a, a culture, which I understand that you are in this conference of planting churches, those that are planting new churches should be deeply aware of the cultures that they're developing and the practices, and they need to be aware of that. Because human beings are odd creatures, and for us, we often feel more persecuted at the, at the hands of those that we love than we do like things like the state or our employer or someone out there. It's, it's our local community. I think Luther felt way more hurt by the people, his own church kind of kicking him out, than he did by any kind of state or government kind of coming and arresting him for breaking laws. In fact, being treated poorly by strangers feels less like persecution than when my church says, Actually, we don't really think you're quite one of us. Thanks for showing up. Maybe someday you'll have evolved enough that you're really a member, but for right now, you're an outreach project, or worse, a hindrance to what we're really trying to do. So we have no mandate, we have to remind ourselves, to be Christians outside of community. This, the church, is the place, and these are the people that Jesus uses to help us love and serve and be who he was in the world. We don't do this as a denomination, although there's big advantages to having a denominational support. We do it as a local congregation. The local congregation is the body of Christ collectively. And the challenge, as I feel like I've outlined it here, is that we are the body of Christ, and our ideal of community includes a wide range of people. But in each of those communities, we have people on the margin. Sometimes that might be us that's on the margins. And sometimes we want to step away from that group and find a new community. That's been referenced, I think, already here. Is that's, that's happened. It's not a surprise to anyone. People that feel on the margins or are kicking against the ideals, I'm going to start a new community. And sometimes people leave us to found a new community. And, and isn't that just inevitable in a world defined by choice? A legitimate answer to that is yes. So my job here isn't to solve this problem once and for all, but to maybe help articulate the challenge and offer a few elements from scripture that might help us think about how to deal with the challenge. So I was reading Romans 14 with my Sabbath school group just as I was percolating about some of these ideas, and it really jumped out to me that there's a lot of really beautiful things in Romans 14 that, that at the time seemed to me 
to be helpful. I think there's a lot more scripture and a lot more principles in the Bible that also help us as we try to think about how to do this. But forgive me while I kind of indulge a bit in in this here, teasing out some of Romans 14. Um, so kind of in good old-fashioned preacher style, if you would turn in your Bibles, um, I'll, I'll be reading uh, Romans 14 to you. It's not very long. Um, and you can look at your digital devices or whatever if you want to read along. Um, so this is, you'll recognize this if you um, aren't familiar with it right now, you'll recognize some of these cadences. Except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. Sometimes we do that, those of us that are more progressive, liberal those people that um, won't do that. We treat them with contempt. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so also to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. And if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink or wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that's not from faith is sin. So, a um, lot there. We're not going to talk about all of it. Um, we're not going to talk about what they're talking about with the days and the meat and all that stuff, right? So we'll just put that away. I'm sure you've heard plenty of things on that, perhaps, or we can have a conversation about that another time. But what I think is really important about chapter 14 is, first of all, the big picture, because chapter 13 ends with um, the description of the second coming. You're doing this um, waking up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer, the hour has almost come, the night is over, let's put aside the deeds of darkness. So this, we do this, all of this we do. We try to be the body of Christ because we're an apocalyptic people. That's the so what here, the big picture. Because we're living into the new earth, because we look for and work for the culmination in the return of Jesus. 
We behave this way for that reason. It's part of our identity, and it helps us keep first things first. We are about the business of the new heaven and the new earth, and so we're going to act and behave differently. But then the chapter goes on to discuss those who don't do things the way that we do. We're an apocalyptic people. The second coming has happened. We're living into the new earth. We feel really strongly about how God wants us to live. And then there's people who don't behave that way. They don't, um, and they don't seem like they know what it means to follow Jesus. And the author of Romans says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us make every effort to do what leads to peace. So what is it that we're looking for when we lean into the kingdom? It's righteousness, peace, and joy. And so we're going to embrace anything that leads to that. So we look for what makes those things happen. The apocalypse, though, did involve judgment. And that's often what causes us to worry about what other people are doing. Um, tempts us to judge the person who isn't parenting well or spending their money appropriately or indulging too much. But right away, the author goes straight to saying, look, the judgment is coming, but each of you mind your own business, right? In verses 3, 4, and 12, that's basically what he's saying. Mind your own business. This includes those who I think are doing things that are just Wow, how can they even think they're living into the kingdom behaving that way? How can they have a job and their job description involves killing people and they're working for the kingdom? I don't get that. And yet, Romans says, just that's between them and God. Um, people that I think are legalists, people that I think are sexist, that are ignorant, ones who are choosing a lifestyle I find horrifying. So we spend time living. The big picture why we do this is because we are people who are living into the new heaven and the new earth, and we're keeping that in mind first. That's the why. That's the so what. Now, Romans also talks about things that we should not do. Um, and the, the best one, the biggest one there in verse 7, is don't live for yourself alone. You don't live for yourself, and you don't die for yourself. I was listening uh, this week to a podcast that I enjoy, Krista Tippett on Being. Um, if you haven't heard that, it's got a lot of good, fun things with it. She interviewed the anthropologist Mary Catherine Bateson, whose mother happens to be the anthropologist Margaret Mead. Um, and Mary Catherine Bateson is a practicing Christian. And the interview included the significant reminder that we have rights to each other. We have rights to relationship. Bateson argues that our rituals and obligations are to the larger community. She really is annoyed by the saying, I'm spiritual but not religious, because she says what that means is they don't want to have any obligations or rituals. They don't want to have any obligations to a larger community, and that's not a thing. Um, she's like, we have to make sure um, that we sometimes, that we don't forget in our language of individual rights, we don't forget community. We neglect the reality that most of us are embedded in networks of relational obligation. So she says we might consider that we have the right to mourn each other. What about people's right to mourn the dead? What about people's right to celebrate with each other? Uh, my sister Amber likes to quote a scene from a comedy she once saw that features a, a large South Asian family of immigrants into the United States, and they have strict rules around what their children are allowed to do or not. And one time their daughter is going, comes up and wants to do something her parents don't want her to do. And she's like, what about my happiness? I just want to be happy. And her dad says, well, what about the rest of our happiness? Does our happiness not matter? 
Is it just your happiness that matters? And that's become kind of a, a joke in our family. If anyone's going to do something that seems like it's going to hurt somebody else, we're like, what about, what about our happiness? Doesn't our happiness matter? In our individual state of, of seeking our happiness, we forget. And people in families know that if you're in a family, you don't just get to do the one thing you want to do. You have to negotiate with other because other people's happiness matters. So Bateson gives an example in the podcast that she says, for example, when couples choose to organize their own ways of being together, um, in other words, I think she's saying when they don't choose marriage, um, they are um, violating the rights maybe of those around them to celebrate, to give meaning to that relationship, to enter into it, to mark it, to mark their participation in that coupling. So we don't live for ourselves alone. And too often in our desire to accomplish our goals and to make sure we have success, even as a local church, we don't think about what everyone else is going through in our attempts to do that. So those of us, especially in leadership, I think have to be careful about that. Um, many of us here are well-networked. And we have lots of ways that we could spend our Sabbaths and our worship time surrounded by our family and our friends and loved ones and nature and be well-loved and refreshed. We don't need to show up to church every Sabbath to have that. But there are people who don't have that. And there are so many people for whom the church is the only place for them where they are going to find belonging and family. And if we don't have those sorts of systems of support and networks if we don't sacrifice sometimes our own abilities to live fully actualized, supported, spiritually vibrant lives aside from a church community in order to create a space for those who do not have it, we're not really thinking about what it means to not live for ourselves alone. Um, of course, as we've mentioned, Roman says, and by the way, don't judge others um, and mind your own business. But how does that go along with what it means to kind of be community to each other um, if we all just kind of mind our own business. And I have a very large and diverse immediate family, um, and we are getting better and better at this, um, at learning to love each other by showing up together in the same places, by celebrating with each other and listening to each other's woes and, um, you know, loving on each other's children while choosing sometimes not to hash everything out. Um, that we might feel like needs to be hashed out. What? We don't need to necessarily talk about. Some things keep between yourself and God, the author of Romans says. And we don't need to constantly be figuring out why someone thinks or acts the way they do, just showing up and loving them, finding some other things to talk about. Um, we don't need to convince others all the time. It doesn't mean we back off of our own beliefs. We can be really strong, and we should, um, the author says. But don't berate others with them when it doesn't lead to love. Because some of us do need to learn what it means to act in love. Um, we might think that we know that, um, but we don't realize that our strong articulation of our ideals is often sometimes seen as criticism of others. We think we're just raising the standard, but it actually looks a lot like condemnation. Um, and for most of us, though, we know when our conversation is leading to greater community or not. Um, I was discussing this with one of the most compassionate members of my family recently, and she said, sometimes you need the right to leave the community because it can seem like you're being oppressed and stifled. Um, so removing the stumbling, stumbling block that the author is talking about here might be letting people feel free to go if they need to. 
Um, and this might mean a different local church or a different denomination, but our desire to force people within our mold of being is really stifling many times. I'm often reminded of Silas, um, of Paul and Barnabas, um, who were partners for a while and then disagreed about how to do ministry and went their separate ways and God blessed both of them. And that was an appropriate outcome for that when you're working for the kingdom. Sometimes churches do have splits and that allows for more flourishing, even if it sort of makes us sad at times. But sometimes you'll have conflict in ministry. Some people want to run an after-school program for kids and others who want to run a program for ex-cons. And it if you have a small congregation, those two ministries aren't necessarily always going to jive together really well, and so maybe it's okay to go to separate places for those. Um, that can be within the will of God. So most of all, though, what we want to finish with here with Romans is um, what it mean, what God wants us to do. And verse 6 is, is kind of the core of that. Give thanks to God. Mostly, we should enjoy the things that God has given us in community, the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit. Because too often our churches are operating in a culture of scarcity. We worry about personnel, we worry about financial resources, and we should be actually a cultivating appreciation for the people and gifts and ideas and investment at whatever level we have around us. Our sacred text tells us to just enjoy what good things God has given. When I'm grateful, I'm much less likely to see people as the enemy or be worried about them or judging them. I'm likely to embrace them as God's good thing in my life when I'm grateful for them. So ultimately, for those of us who are trying to create healthy churches that are inclusive and less liable to fragmented individualism and splitting, and these realities that are ever-present in the modern world, Romans 14 has this positive news in verse 16 verses 22, 23, verse 5. Do not let what you know is good be spoken of by, as evil. Be convinced in your own mind, and blessed are you when you do not condemn yourself in what you approve. Those are really fascinating statements to me. Blessed are you when you don't condemn yourself in what you approve. So this releases us from trying to be all things to all people. We can't be. We can work for the kingdom of God and do what God has asked us to do with confidence and lean into the grace and love and joy and peace that it gives. And when it's no longer doing that for ourselves or for others, we have to listen closely to the spirit to make sure we're submitting to that and attempting to um, live into the kingdom and maybe allow other people to move their own ways if that's what's needed. So here we are trying to decide if we can actually be a big tent church. Can we include people? Can we love each other even though we have strong ideas that shape how we do church? And on the local level, what keeps us unified and healthy without stifling others who don't practice what the collective leadership vision has chosen to emphasize? One possibility is that being unified in diversity is just more possible in larger churches where varieties of practice and ministries and cultural differences have more space to flourish. Perhaps smaller churches need to be so focused on something that it's harder if the culture or vision isn't representative of everyone. Smaller can be more razor sharp, but it's really clear if you're not on board with it, and people can easily decide if they're in or they're out in that small group. But with larger churches, there's more room for full participation in appropriate areas where different gifts and ideals can thrive. So for the local church, big tent, if you're a small church, might be harder. 
We actually do live in a pluralist world, and the Christian version of that is to allow for diversity of practice and belief within the context of a shared commitment to the kingdom and the gospel. We are actually different from each other, and when we talk about unity and a big tent church, we're doing that with the knowledge that each congregation will also have a set of priorities and practices and a particular identity. And so it's possible that the larger the local church is, the easier it may be to include diverse missions or support a variety of commitments without isolating the outliers. But in small churches, the big tent metaphor will be harder. As they pick their ministries, their focus, and husband their resources and create their culture, it's glaringly obvious um, who might not be on board with that. And making people feel included can happen, but it takes masses of social skill and emotional energy. Small churches have to rely on love and personal care to integrate people, and not all of them are up to the task. Another option that's frankly more attractive to me, but way harder and maybe impossible, is laid out in Stanley Hauerwas's book, Approaching the End, Eschatological Reflections on Church Politics and Life. Hauerwas utilizes the Anabaptist pacifist John Howard Yoder. Some of you have read his work, his description of church unity. So as Adventists, we have a denomination that's increasingly looking like um, to mainstream churches, but we do have our Anabaptist roots that we can lean towards, um, that, that we can uh, pull from for some of this. Hauerwas and Yoder are often critical of the generic modern pluralism. Celebrations of pluralism, Howard, argued, um, Howard Yoder argues, can be a way to avoid holding one another accountable by asking if we believe what we say is true. We just, just live and let live and let everybody be who they are. Too often, celebrations of diversity are attempts to avoid the hard duty of reconciliation, postponing long-range investment in tasks that take time and that demand occasional readiness for suffering. So we'll just live and let live, because we just really don't care that much. Diversity should have a purpose, and we see that as using our gifts for the kingdom. Our unity is based on our mandate to be a reconciling people, Malachi 4 is, is this kind of apocalyptic verse. I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Like It's a reconciling ministry that we have. And we need to be confronting each other using the skills that are outlined in Matthew 18. Our love is based on a diverse people always reconciling themselves to each other. The Anabaptist pacifist said such unity and reconciliation was found in gathering for worship together. And this is what we see in the Trinitarian imperative. When Jesus prays for unity in John 17, he says they're going to be one like we're one. It's that the Trinity love that, that, we're, that our unity is based on. And the Anabaptist says this is gathering for worship together. That's where we practice that, where we have communion together. We are one through worship as God is one. And all of this is local doesn't happen at the denominational level, doesn't happen at the universal level. It happens in the local body of Christ. That is who we have communion together. So the principles in Romans 14 that are about keeping some of our strong ideas to ourselves while not feeling like we need to give them up or feel badly about them or be bitter about them, right? Sometimes we're just being, as a conversation that I had this week said, we're just being discreet. You know, let's not put our stuff in your face. In many ways, it's not about, also not about being passive aggressive. So I don't have to keep my ideas secret and I don't have to undermine you. I can just sit there and say, I think this and you think this, and I'm not going to condemn myself for what I approve. 
showing up together, serving together, loving and enjoying each other, while not feeling we have to give up what we ourselves know to be right. Romans 14 ends up sounding a bit relativistic and compatible with the modern world, but in the context of the rest of the New Testament, it's radical because it calls us to keep loving each other and living for others, even when we have different convictions. So I think this is an experiment that's actually going on all the time in tons of local churches. And I hope to hear from some of you today about how that's working in your local church, because I think that's actually happening a lot. The first thing about being a follower of Jesus is our Christology. But right there, next in line, is our ecclesiology. First, it's about being a follower of Jesus, and next, it's about being the body of Christ in this world. And there are no limits on the exercise of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. So as we work to accomplishing our vision and creating a strong church culture in the local context, let's practice thanking God for our ideas and convictions and his grace even as we work alongside those who may have completely different practices, but who want to use their gifts for the same peace and grace and love as we build the kingdom. So this requires the fruits of the Spirit, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, especially on the part of those of us with strong ideas. But we can try to mind our own business, even as we're secure in our convictions. I'm going to finish with a couple of sentences from that great describer of a local community, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and his life together. Just as Christians should not be constantly feeling the pulse of their spiritual life, so too the Christian community has not been given us by God for us to be continually taking its temperature. I always feel like he's saying, shut up and be the church. Stop worrying about it. Just shut up and be the church. You already are. The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more assuredly and consistently will community increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. And more pointedly, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. May God help us love each other better so we can be the body of Christ in our local congregation.